Hello, everyone. This is Martin Willis. Welcome to episode number 109 of the Antique Auction Forum with David Rago. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. All right, everyone, I'm here in Lambertville. Lambertville, New Jersey. New Jersey with David Rago. How are you doing, David? Good, good. Good to have you here. We're, yeah. So the people know we are about an hour out of Manhattan and about 45 minutes outside of Philadelphia. So we're centrally located and we're in an artist colony on the Delaware River next to New Hope. Nice place to be. Yes. Yeah, I know it's really green and lush around here. Very pretty. And a, lot of, and a lot of the stuff we sell was made here. George Nagashima was made across the river four miles away, and Phil Powell used to come to our auctions, and Paul Evans was based here. So a lot of the things really? we specialize in, the reasons why we're here, it's not just well-located. but I had no idea Nagashima was here. They're still making the furniture in the original location four his miles. His daughter? His... Mira. Yeah. Uh-huh. Four, four miles from where we're sitting. Is that right? Wow. That when a piece comes in, we're like a dining table where the top... Has uh, the finish has shown some wear from years of use? We bring it to Mir, and she puts an original Nakashima finish on it for us. Wow, wow, that's great. Well, we're, we're sitting here in this room. You have an auction coming up, and the date is you just said it today is June 11th. And the auction is this coming Saturday and Sunday. And okay, so and I see this room we're in here is just full of Mission Oak. Arts and crafts furniture, beautiful pieces, lots, yeah. lots of them. Well, we, we're a 20th century auction house, so we start with our arts and crafts material on mm-hmm. Saturday, and then we move into modern material on Sunday. So there's a mix of both. Where mm-hmm. you're sitting right now, only the arts and crafts material is yeah. on display. There's a modern across the aisle, and then we have another location, a 6,000-foot showroom around the corner with the rest of the material oh, in it. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Wow. I would say that you probably get some of the top money in the country for these uh-huh. pieces. What I want to talk about really concerning the auction is is what we do and why it's different than the other auctions because there are some very fine modern auctions in America. I mean, Sotheby's and Christie's and Phillips are an hour from us. Uh So why would people sell through us and why would they they buy here when they have such great options in New York City, for example? But the difference is, is, uh, is really in the selection we choose to offer. For example, an average piece of the Sotheby's sale, an average sale is about twenty-five to fifty thousand dollars. Whereas an average sale for us is about five to seven thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So we sell some great things. Our sale this weekend will have a hundred, eleven hundred lots. Wow! Perhaps only a hundred of, of those lots would fit into a Christie's or a Sotheby's auction. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thousand lots are below their price level. Yes. Okay, but there are a lot of people out there who don't have twenty five or fifty thousand right. to spend on a good piece. And yeah. there's great stuff at that level. There are mm-hmm. wonderful Laverne tables and pieces of Nakashima yep. and pieces of Stickley that are ten thousand, five thousand and under, and there's no reason we can make money at that level, and so we offer yeah. them. It's a compendium of twentieth century design, which is what I say, starting with mm-hmm. aesthetic movement around eighteen seventy five and moving up to things that were made last week. Mm-hmm. and everything in between. So we do have a mini Sotheby sale or Christie sale in what we do, but there's mm-hmm. a thousand additional lots for folks who want to come and look at good design and, and don't have a ton of money to spend. Yes. Now, I, I know Laverne, you just mentioned, it's like inlaid metal or different metals, or appears to be anyway, like the copper look. Inlaid metal, primarily a base metal, and, and then with some inlays of, of uh, different metals, yes. Uh-huh. And some of those tables can do really well, depending on what they are. Like there's 
coffee tables, side tables. What other furniture did Laverne make? We sold a Laverne sideboard last year for $55,000. Oh. Wow. I mean, it can bring a lot of money. Yeah. They also uh-huh. made wall plaques in metal with, with the same sort of design you would see a very uh, uh, Asian influence uh, motif on their pieces. Mm-hmm. So, but most of, mostly they're known for their coffee tables and end tables, yeah. good accent pieces. Mm-hmm. And they started about three to four thousand dollars, and the average good ones between say eight and twelve thousand. Now, when was when were they? When did they begin, and when did they end? Do I don't know? know the exact dates. They were working in Long Island on the North Shore of Long Island, oh. and I would say certainly in the fifties and sixties. Mm-hmm. And these things were not cheap. A lot of this modern yeah. furniture that, that is being sold these days, these things were expensive when they were new. I mean, Nakashima wasn't considered yeah. inexpensive. Mm-hmm. I grew up around here. I grew up 15 miles from where we're sitting, and mm-hmm. my family couldn't afford Nakashima. Yeah. Uh, a dining table might have been $500, mm-hmm. where most dining tables and most furniture stores back in the 50s were $100 or less. Yeah. But it's yeah. interesting. We have a consignment in this sale, uh, the Novak consignment, and she has all the original paperwork. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Novak out near Pittsburgh, living near Pennsylvania. And there's, for example, uh, a coffee table they bought for $350. Well, we have it in at thirty to 40000 So <laughs> Good investment. Got, they yeah. got to live with it for 50 years. Yeah. And it's worth multiples of what they paid for it. Yeah. But we're seeing a lot of that. You won't be doing that at Ikea, I don't think. No, no. <laughs> what pieces in production today that are being made, as you mentioned, that can be made very recently. What are the pieces today that are commanding a huge amount of money at auction? Well, there's certain people like Albert Paley, the metalsmith, mm-hmm. who's genius. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we love Albert's work, and we're lucky to have it once in a while. There are a few pieces in this sale, but Albert's still making work, and it's sensational. I mean, he's... He's my favorite guy. Oh, Wendell Castle also is a big name. I was on a panel mm-hmm. discussion last week in New York City with Wendell Castle, uh, one of the country's best furniture designers, and he's been making furniture since the 50s. Wow. So his pieces wow. will still be. So we're selling pieces by Wendell that were made in the 60s, in the 90s, and that were made within wow. the last 10 years. Same thing with Albert Paley. We're selling some new things. Most of what we have are period pieces. We have a table in this sale that was made in 1981. I think it's dated. I think it's 81. So it's fun to see these artists who are still making great work. Yeah. Uh, the material come to market and actually we may have three or four decades of work by the same artist wow. in a single auction. So those are two names that come to, to mind. Ron uh-huh. Arad is another big name. Um, he's still yeah. making uh, I- examples. Mm-hmm. Uh, Philippe Stark. We sell some Philippe Stark work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He did a lot of design commissions in and around the New York area. Sounds like these would almost be worth the investment because they just, I mean, if they sell good at auction today and they're fairly new, they probably will hold the value as far as people. I know it's all speculation. Well, I don't like to sell for investment. Mm-hmm. Um, my approach is somewhat different. Number one, if you wanted to buy a brand new piece of furniture of really good quality, mm-hmm. buy a second level designer, what would it cost? I mean, new sofas are, uh, of the highest order are twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars a piece for a great new sofa. Mm-hmm. I'd buy a Vladimir Kagan sofa for fifteen or twenty thousand dollars that was made mm-hmm. in the nineties or eighties. Vladimir's still alive. He's a friend of ours. He was there in New York City last week as well. We sell mm-hmm. Vladimir pieces from the sixties and from the nineties and things that are from after two thousand. Uh, but I know what things sell for new. We're selling vintage pieces for a fraction of the cost of a new piece. And in terms of an investment, is it one? I can't say it is, but certainly a better investment 
for buying a great sofa for half of what a brand new one costs that's already got age to it, because the new one's not an investment, in my opinion, mm-hmm. if you want to invest. That new one may be exactly what you want, mm-hmm. and you have the money for it, and the price is fair based on what new furniture sells for. There's no reason not to buy it. But if you're looking to invest, that's not where I'd be looking. Yeah. I know it's always a tricky question about investing when it comes to any type of art, you know, whether it's... Uh, but I do see that there is a movement of a lot of people buying the very best of an item, you know, putting their money into that instead of stocks, you know, something tangible. Well, and, and stocks certainly have not proved to be the, the great investment America once thought they were. Yeah. And, and frankly, a lot of the prices for, for arts and crafts and 20th century design have dropped. I and mean, everything dropped in yeah. 2008. That's not a secret. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not going to say that, well, if you bought furniture instead of stocks, you'd be much better off. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. Yeah, good it's, point. Because yeah. it depends on what furniture you bought. Mm-hmm. Some furniture didn't drop at all. But then again, probably some stocks didn't drop at all after 2008, yeah. where they went down yeah. and came back quickly. I think the main point again is it's not an inve- it's not to me it shouldn't be primarily an investment. The, mm-hmm. the the best advice I got in that regard was was from a Philadelphia collector and he said buy with your heart but keep an eye cock to the future. Uh-huh. So in other words, if you don't like it and yeah. you buy it to live with it, yeah. even if it's a good investment, how good is that? Yeah, yeah. So you've got a piece you don't respond to or that's not very good that you're stuck with because you think it's going to be worth more money. I think that's a really good point. There's no fun in that. On the other hand, if you buy a piece that you love and you spend too much money on it and you you know that, it's going to be like a pebble in your shoe every time you walk by it. Okay, so buy something you really respond to. Do your research. God sakes, there's enough information out there. There's no reason Mm -hmm. to overpay for something right now. Yeah. Okay. Unless you have to have it, you have the money and you're tired of waiting, then okay, knock Mm -hmm. yourselves out. But you should know what you're getting into and, and buy with that in mind. Do you think that people are better off collecting like a certain area of something to ha- and gather the really nice pieces or is like an eclectic collection, does it really matter? That's as personal as the person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some people, when they collected arts and crafts back in the day, did an arts and crafts interior. Everything was mm-hmm. arts and crafts. The linens on the windows were loomed, and the rugs were Indian drugget rugs, and everything had to be the right way. And I started seeing maybe 10 or 15 years ago, after arts and crafts had been in revival for 30 years, the period only lasted 15 years. The revival right. already pushing 40. In wow. fact, this year is That's more or less the 40th Never thought year. of it that way, yeah. yeah. So then some people started mixing. And those mm-hmm. were the really good eyes. The people who really had a sense would still buy arts, because arts and crafts furniture is, is wonderful stuff. It's, it's, it's agree, beautifully yeah. made. It defines its period in that the way it looks represents what it's supposed to mean. That's mm-hmm. a whole other podcast. We can do that down the road. But when you see that express joinery, that through tenon joint on, a, on a, an Augusta Stickley table, that's a real joint. It functions. It holds the piece mm-hmm. in place. But it also is telling you, I'm joined this way. Yeah. And if you're going to make that's me, right. this is how you make a joint. This is, it, it, it's, it expresses its purpose, its function, and the, 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 um, the, an aesthetic that includes you in part of that process. Mm. So it's a valid reform movement. The, the, the objects from that movement never lost that validity. But to me, they started to get lost in a, a forest of other brown pieces. And now what I'm seeing happen is um, 
a great Gustav Stickley china cabinet. We'll be mixed in with a Laverne coffee table. Mm-hmm. We'll get mixed in with a Nakashima dining table. Mm-hmm. I mean, the people who are smarter about this now take arts and crafts out of the context we used to know it within and uh, recontextualize it in a broader context. Wow. It is part of a design continuum. I mean, Nakashima didn't come from nowhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, Wharton Eshrick preceded George Nakashima, and Eshrick came to the tail end of the arts and crafts movement. Mm-hmm. So these things are connected. Yeah, wow. Now, you think of uh, Morris, right, in England, started the movement of the arts and crafts, or? Morris and his contemporaries understood the need for it and, mm-hmm. and reacted against the machine age and the industrial, revo- industrial mm-hmm. revolution and... I've said this so many times, my eyes start to glaze over a little bit. But it is true. They, they understood the trade-off. Here's mm. the trade-off. We have people now with jobs. Mm. We have a growing economy. People have money. They're not under the boot of royalty. I mean, good things are happening because of the Industrial Revolution. It's taking some of the drudgery out of, out of, out of workmanship. On the other hand, it, it's making the, the movement, the, the um, Industrial Revolution is causing a lot of really bad things to be made and a lot of bad things to happen. It's ruining the environment. Uh, It's uh, filling the air with smoke. Uh, Really poor quality pieces are being die stamped. Mass production is resulting in in, uh, lowering the quality of people's lives. Specialization means that you don't get to see a piece through from start to finish. You make the legs of a chair, and someone makes the arm, and someone makes the back, and someone assembles it. Whereas the old way mm-hmm. was somebody would make a piece from start to finish, and when they were done, they'd have, oh, look, I did that, that sense of creatorship, mm. which was um, something that they felt was critical to building society from the inside out. It nurtured yeah. the soul. And so that's what the arts and crafts movement railed against, mm-hmm. bringing, things, uh, bringing things back to center, if you will. Yeah. And as the arts and crafts movement went farther west from... England and Scotland to Boston to Chicago to California continue to be redefined. American arts and crafts movement is quite different from what the Europeans were after. Mm-hmm. You see, there's also an apprenticeship associated with mm-hmm. this type of work, whereas the machine age kind of lost all that. Right, right. Yeah. So let's get into pots a little bit, art pottery. And are you ready to talk about that? Always ready to talk about art <laughs> yeah. pottery. Now, that's a, that's a real passion of yours. You seem to be very, very well-versed as my 40th year. This is my 40th <laughs> year as I started at the flea market down the street, three miles from here in 72. Wow. Right right in here. Lamberville Flea Market. How about yeah, that? Yeah. yeah. So I sort of come Well, I have home. to ask you what's your first piece that, that you bought. First, you piece, first piece of art pottery that I handled was a piece of Roseville. Uh-huh. Now, do you ca- actually call that art pottery? Roseville? It's not really art pottery. Yeah. In fact, most of what we sell is not real art pottery. Yeah. Um... And that, how would you define art pottery? Is it a, is a trade term? How would you define art pottery? Well, in a broad sense, art pottery is any piece of ceramic that was made for decorative purposes rather than for function. Mm-hmm. So we're not talking about okay. a picture that yep. was made at the Roseville Pottery in 1905, even though it's early and in the middle of the arts and crafts period, mm-hmm. it was made for kitchen use. Some yep. people would say it's an art pottery piece. Technically, it could be. And it certainly wasn't that ugly picture you would have seen from 20 years earlier with the Bennington Glaze or that yep. Pennsylvania Dutch stoneware piece you'd have seen a century earlier. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, it is part of the art pottery movement. Yeah, which is a sub-genre of the arts and crafts movement. 
Technically, though, if you talk to someone like George Orr, who was an art potter, or William Wally, who was an art potter, um, there's more merit. Wally once said, there's more merit in a brick formed and finished by a single man than the best piece of commercial pottery ever made. Wow. And George Orr <laughs> was one person, one pot. And mm-hmm. Orr dug the clays, chopped the wood, mixed the glazes, built the pottery itself, including the kiln, from the ground up. Wow. Yeah. Threw the pots by hand, glazed them, finished them. Every piece of George Orr, almost every piece of George Orr, was something he did from start to finish, and they're one-of-a-kind pieces. That's real art pottery. If you mm-hmm. want to get... Uh, as as um, formal as you can be about the meaning of the term, it would have to be someone like George Orr. But then are we saying that Frederick Reed, who who worked at University City for two years with Taxia Dewat and Adelaide Robineau and, and Emile Defloth, and had a cast, a supporting cast around them to do some of the work, so there were collaborations? Or is that mm-hmm. not really art pottery? I would disagree. Mm-hmm. I think it is art. Groovy. The arts and crafts are pottery from the seat of the arts and crafts movement in America, Boston. Well, at Boston's, the person who threw the pot wasn't the person who decorated the pot, and that wasn't the person who glazed or fired the pot. There was a small assembly line there, but it's some of the finest arts and crafts are pottery made in America. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the, they use the term Mauritian after William Morris, the Mauritian ideal, it's not artwork. It's not, it's not true art, arts and crafts artware because it's not a single piece done by one person. There was a trade-off in America. But on the other hand, the European arts and crafts movement, material, wasn't affordable, wasn't affordable to the middle class. It was not democratic because of the mechanization that was allowed to some extent in America and because of this division of labor, this little division of labor. That was what was acceptable here. Pieces were more reasonable, and more people got to live with them. Mm-hmm. So that's essentially the trade-off between yeah. European arts and crafts and American arts and crafts. If I may oversimplify. That said, there were probably 200 to 300 companies making some some level of art pottery in America from around 1875 until about 1920, 1915, 1920. World War One sort of ended the movement. Yet we have a piece of Cowan sitting on the table over there, a Cowan jazz bowl made by Victor Schreckengoss in 1930 that's a masterpiece of American ceramic design. Right. Yeah. We wouldn't, I mean, they're molded. Twenty were made, but they're all hand done. Yeah. Victor stenciled the work on the surface of the pot and did some of the artwork himself. And they're welcome. They are in most of the major museums in America. This is a masterpiece. Mm. Wow. But it's 1930. It's long after mm-hmm. the arts and crafts movement. And it, it's art deco, for God's sakes. It's not even arts and crafts and design. Is that a piece of art pottery? Mm. Well, there's also, like, there's, among others, there's Rookwood, where it's, like, commercial but yet hand-painted, hand-decorated. How does that kind of... Well, Rookwood's commercial and it's not commercial. I mean, Rookwood was in business for 80-some years, so you get a lot Mm -hmm. of things in Rookwood. You get Victorian and aesthetic movement and Art Nouveau and arts and crafts and Art Deco and Art Modern and modern and postmodern. You get all sorts of, not really postmodern, but certainly post-World War II modern. You get all sorts of things in Rookwood. And by and large, when they made arts and crafts pottery, they did a crappy job of it because they weren't arts and crafts potters. Mm -hmm. So Rookwood molded most of what they made. And most Mm -hmm. real arts and crafts pottery is not molded. It's Mm hand-thrown. If you look at Gruby, Newcomb, Walrath, Wally, Reed's early work, I can give you a list of, of 50 or 60 names whose work, Overbeck, I just did a piece of Overbeck with Antiques Rocho this past weekend in Boston. If you look at uh, that as a, as a central criteria for, for arts and crafts pottery, it's supposed to be hand-thrown. George Orr 
Rookwood almost wasn't. And when they did make hand-thrown pieces, with few exceptions, they were awful. <laughs> they were very clumsy in form. Really, yeah. They used Mac lasers, but they used them in a fairly commercial way. There was a division of labor because the person who designed the shape didn't mold the piece or throw the piece and then decorate the piece and someone else glazed the piece and someone fired the piece and someone finished the piece. There might be seven or eight people in a piece of Rookwood. Hmm. More to the point, Rookwood had a commercial line where they were cast and glazed. That's it. And they had um, an art line where pieces were cast, decorated, glazed, and fired. So they had a production line of commercial wear. They had a semi-production line of artist-decorated wear. But Rookwood was really known to paint pictures, mostly flowers, but also places and animals and people on the sides of a pot. Very literal. Mm -hmm. Easy to collect. It's pretty. They were winning gold medals in Paris in 1900. This is a world-class pottery. Mm. And, and as I said, they stayed in business for 80-some years. People got wedding gifts of Rookwood. That's how revered Rookwood was. Mm. But is it arts and crafts? Nah, not really. Yeah, yeah. When I was about uh, 17 or so, my father got into a house. He had an auction company before me. Got into a house. And we had all this pottery marked SEG on the bottom. Uh-huh. Lots of it. I remember there was like a punch bowl and there was all nice. kinds of things. Had no idea what it was. And uh, the good thing is, is he put a picture in the, the Newtown B, the Antiques and Arts Weekly. And so the word got out. And this was in the 70s. And I remember they were bringing like two to $300 a piece and people were clapping. Well, SEG is another really special arts and crafts yeah. pottery. In fact, the first lot of our 1,100-lot sale, the very first lot is an SEG bowl that's a bit of a masterpiece. Really? And it's an oxymoron. See that. It's yeah. true arts and crafts. However, it's molded or press-molded, huh. not a hand-thrown pot. So SEG for Saturday Evening Girls mm-hmm. was uh, Boston-based pottery. Paul the, Revere, right? Paul Revere pottery? Paul Revere pottery. Yeah. And SEG was a, 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 a subheading. And it was uh, supposedly on Saturday nights, underprivileged Italian and Jewish immigrant girls would decorate pots mm-hmm. on Saturday nights. It would teach them a craft, it would earn them some money, and it would keep them from things that could bring them down, whatever that might be. Yeah. You know, but just basically, uh, they, weren't, they weren't of the street. And that's See, what that's some, a misconception because yeah. that's what I had, my father had found out that they... To keep the prostitutes off they the street. They were definitely not that. They were not. In fact, they'd be yeah. very offended, and their forebears are extremely <laughs> offended. In fact, uh, I've heard people, up. yeah, absolutely yeah. not. But nevertheless, um, you don't have to be a streetwalker to get in trouble in Boston around 1908. Yeah. Okay, or there now. Were certainly, yeah. Or now, <laughs> right. There were, there were things that could bring you down one way or another. And this, this mm-hmm. was, and this is arts and crafts at the core. It's, again, meant to elevate us from the inside out. It's a very lofty aesthetic. Mm-hmm. It's uh, philosophically driven. Like few hmm. aesthetics are, it is meant to bring you higher by finding something within yourself that creates, make you part of the creative process that is the world. It's, it's, it's why after 40 years and really being bored with it, I'm kind of done with it, I still get goosebumps when I talk about it because I know of nothing else that's, that said, that, was, that put it out there. This, this is meant to make life better for you as an individual and for society as a whole. I think it's really great stuff. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, this piece of SEG we have is classic. It's 1908 or 1909, one of the two, bowl shop period, early production. It's coarse and sophisticated at the same time, hmm. which really defines what SEG was. Yeah. Crude 
and sublime. Uh-huh. And this is the best example from that period I have ever seen, in, again, in 40 years. Wow. I had my first piece of SEG wow. at the flea market in Lamberville in 73. You did. So a year later, after you bought your first piece, you found yeah. a piece yeah. of SEG? Yeah. And so let's go back to that just a little bit. So you started out with Roseville, and did you just get real excited about it, and you decided you wanted to collect more, and well, how, what happened? Roseville was easy. It was available, and I yeah. could buy it. I mean, I was a college student, so I could buy a piece for $5 and sell it for 8 and make 3 bucks, and that was wonderful. And then Weller, which was the same town as Roseville, Zanesville, Ohio, Weller was collectible, and I'd find a piece of Weller for 8 bucks and sell it for 15 And yeah. I had to work three hours at Bernie's Bicycle Shop to get that much money, so that, and, and yeah. I was my own boss. Did you say you were a college student in 72? 72, yeah. yeah. I'm surprised yeah. you... Yeah, I started in seven, it was my first year was seventy two, yeah. so I put myself. You're through well college. preserved, like a piece of pottery. Oh well, th- <laughs> well thank you. Yeah. I put myself through college, uh, working three jobs. One was the flea market, uh, yeah. also at a bicycle shop, and uh-huh. also at a night crew at a supermarket stocking shelves. Wow! But uh, f- my mother found at a church sale for th- a nickel a piece of marblehead pottery. Oh my god! And I wow. didn't know what it was, but I knew it was good. Yeah. And we sold it for like $20, which was a huge markup. Yeah. And my father bought a piece of Newcomb College, a scenic, for $25. Mm-hmm. Moon and Moss Scenic that we sold to a gallery in New York City for $200. Wow. Okay, so yeah. we were scoring on things. And yeah. at that time, to make a $50 profit yeah. was, was a big deal. I mean, It's I was, like the people applauding at the $200 item. It was all in the 70s. It's all in the 70s. Yeah. I, was, I was getting $100 a week putting myself through college. And to have a $50 score... My biggest hit, though, was at the Englishtown flea market. That would have been 73 or 74. I found my first piece of groovy pottery ah. by Lantern. I, was, I had a Coleman Lantern. Ah. And I found this thing that, again, I knew it was good. But you mean it was, you got there real early and it was dark I got, still? I'd leave the um, supermarket after unloading a truck full of canned goods at about midnight. And I'd get to the flea wow. market by about 2 <laughs> and shop till dawn and then sell till about eight or nine and then try to drive wow. home without falling asleep at the wheel. But um, I found this piece of pottery. It looked like a cucumber. It was $8. And I sold it for $110. Wow. And that paid yeah. half my tuition for the semester. <laughs> they sure have one, changed. In one pot, yeah. My yeah. Son, it was uh, 400 bucks a year at that time to go to State College. Wow, wow. Yeah. So now how did you transition into this, into your auctions? I know we'll get back to our party, but I just want to know, what was the transition? Did you work with other companies at some point, uh, other auction houses? I was working for a gallery in New York City in, uh-huh. in uh, November of 83. We both realized it wasn't working. It was probably more me being fired than me quitting, but uh, it was somewhat mutual. And at that point, I had a family and no job and didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. So auctions looked like fun because... Auctions look like fun. Yeah. They're a lot They're of fun. They're no work either, right? Oh, no. They look like a lot of fun until you try to do one. So yeah. I started one from scratch. I never worked so hard. I'm a guy that was working three jobs and going to college, and I never yeah. worked so hard in my life as yeah. when I started the auction business. It was People don't un- realize it. unbelievably yeah. hard. And you work for half a year with no guarantee you're going to make any money. Yeah. And my first sale, I made $8,000. That was your gross? That was my profit for oh, a, a half a year. That's not... Well, yeah. And, 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 yeah, I mean, my father lost money for the first year but kept going. You know? Well, it really wasn't a lot of money considering I sold a bunch of pottery I could have sold privately and made more than that with a lot less aggravation and no risk. Yeah. My house was on the line that first auction. Ooh. Yeah. So uh, I wasn't going to do another one, but a friend of mine who was working with me at the time said, you know, I think we can make this thing work if you hire me. 
let's give it another shot. Second auction, I think I made fifteen thousand uh-huh. dollars. And by the fourth or fifth auction, I was stuck. There was no place else to go. We just kept doing it. <laughs> yeah, and it's you have to enjoy the ancillary benefits of doing an auction because, by and large, the money's not good until you really get it rolling. So yeah. I learned how to speak publicly and call an auction and do studio photography, and I got to meet the collectors and got to travel a lot. I mean, I've had a good, I've had a good run of it. But yeah. we were in the auction business from 84 until about 2002 before we really started making some money at this. Yeah. That's almost 20 years. Mm-hmm. Now, when did you start appearing on the roadshow? Uh, the first year was 96. Now, that must have helped put, boost your your presence in your business a little bit? It did. I mean, the arts and crafts field is still fairly small. It's, it's, mm-hmm. There's not that much material out there. You're dealing with 15 years of material. There are essentially four furniture companies of any merit. Mm-hmm. And uh, as far as high-end potteries are concerned, there's only 50 of them, and they were small production, and that was almost a century ago at the time I was doing this, or when I started with this, and a lot of it was broken and lost. It's not a great mm-hmm. mass of material out there. Yeah. Uh, so you were always dealing with a small market base. It couldn't support a larger clientele. But it did introduce me to people, Rocho did, that would not have known me in that way otherwise. A lot of people I dealt with were over the phone. This is even before email was much used. Right, yeah. Uh, I remember write, typing letters on a typewriter. Oh, yeah. And, and, yeah. and hand-addressing envelopes. Yeah, I had that IBM with a little ball thing on it. I thought that was, you know. Yeah, it was at the time. That was high-tech then. So Rocha yeah. really put my wife and I on the, uh, we, we were known well within the field. I mean, at that point, it had been 25 years. But yeah. it really helped us out with people who'd never met us. And if you're the only people in your field who are doing it, and, and PBS is very thorough about who they allow on their show, right. we yeah. must be legitimate. Otherwise, they'd have thrown us off already. Yeah. We just, yeah. Boston, we were in Boston on Saturday this past Last week, right. yeah. taping the first of the show of the seventeenth year. Yeah, I mean yeah. seventeen years. Yeah, that was uh, when I had dark hair before I discovered <laughs> carbohydrates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I work with Jim Callahan. Oh, know, okay. You know, yeah, he was telling me it was very, very nice to go so close, so close. To yeah, home. I'm yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. We had one in uh, Philly, which was close to us, and one in Atlantic City, yeah. and one at the Meadowlands, and I think one or two in New York over the years. Yeah, yeah. So let's get back into the the art pottery. What would you say if someone was starting to collect? How what's a good thing to tell a novice collector out there how to begin? I've been telling them the same thing for years, and it's more true now than it ever was. What's your hurry? Take your time. Ah, get some books. Go online. Yeah. Do your research. If you're near an auction, go to it. Here, we have right now a preview up of 1,100 pieces that I mentioned earlier, including several hundred pieces of art pottery or, or decorative ceramics, let's say, because it spans from 19th century to things that were made in the 80s and 90s, mm-hmm. in addition to glass from the turn of the century to things made in the 1990s. I said 1890s earlier. I mean 1990s. And same thing with glass and furniture. Come and look. There's no charge. Yeah. You don't have to register. There is, that is a misconception. A lot of people say, how much does it cost to get in? Have you had that? I've heard that people all the People think years. there's a fee, and, and, yeah. or that it's a fee to come to the auction. It's not. Yeah. Uh, you may not want to come to the auction. Maybe you feel like you'll get tempted, or maybe <laughs> you really want to look at the pieces. You don't care what they sell for. Come and look. They're yeah. all out on display. Within yeah. reason, you can handle them. You, you want to sit in the Morris chair? Go ahead and try it out. See what it feels like to sit in the Morris chair or Vladimir Kagan's sofa. Uh, we have a... 
we have a selection of pieces that represent four months of gathering, and mm. this assemblage will never be together again, ever. Yeah. And you can come here and hang out with it. We have yeah. some people come here three or four days just to look at the stuff. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing how it all goes to the wind, isn't it? It all goes you, to the wind. But while it's here, you can gather yeah. more information. I mean, for me to see this much art pottery yeah. in 1975, mm. if you went to a flea market and there were three or four pieces, that was a lot. Yeah. And much less to walk into a place and there's hundreds. Right. So your chance of learning something is so much greater now. If you live mm-hmm. near Sotheby's or Christie's or you're around here or a place where there's an auction that holds a specialty sale, there's no reason not to go if you have an interest in the material. Go to museums, too, because mm-hmm. a lot of the masterworks are museums, but you're not going to cozy up to them. Do you think there are collectors for everything, like the commercial, like still Roseville? I mean, Roseville is a fraction of what it was during. I, I don't know if you remember this, but when eBay first came alive, Roseville was going for a ton of money for a while on eBay. And then everybody put their pieces on eBay, and then all of a sudden the market started dropping. Well, that, that's sort of true. That's more true of things like Hummels. Yeah. I'm serious. Yeah, yeah. The Hummel okay. market's tanked and has never come back. That's right. Yeah. Roseville did well on eBay for a while yeah. uh, and did well up until 2005, 2006. It was still doing well It was well still then? doing well. Uh-huh. Then it hit the wall. Yeah. And good pieces are still bringing good money, but yeah. only the best of the best. Prices in many instances have been cut by a half or two-thirds. Right. So yeah. there's definitely been a fall-off in that. But it's good. It's really good commercial pottery. Mm-hmm. They made some really well-designed material. Yeah. Look at some of their 30s patterns. They're fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and then uh, there's Weller and... Weller Woodcraft and and yeah. not to mention their hand painted lines. I'm still, I've, there's still Roseville pieces out there I'd sell for fifty for fifty thousand dollars. Well, is you serious? They had an art line. They had I didn't a, know they that. Had, they had Frederick Reed, who I mentioned wow. earlier, designed a number of great lines for Roseville. But if a, wow. a high end piece of Roseville Della Roby came up fifty thousand dollars in a I've heartbeat. Heard of Della Roby, yeah. yeah. Della Roby was a line made for about a year from nineteen oh six to nineteen oh seven of seventy some forms and designs mm. by Frederick Reed. And Frederick Reed, I keep mentioning this guy's name. I mean, Frederick Reed started in England, came to America, worked for Roseville, Weller, Avon, Jervis, University City, Arequipa, Reed Santa Barbara, then went to Ohio and, and created Fiesta Ware. I mean, Frederick wow. Reed's the man. And he made pieces that either are one, one-offs. We have one in the sale, a Frederick Reed piece for University City, which was in St. Louis, a one-off piece to design mass-produced pieces like Fiesta wear. Hmm. And some of the Roseville produ- uh, artist wear was done by Reed, including this Della Robia line I mentioned. He didn't sit down and decorate the pieces, but he designed them. Hmm. And they're very labor-intensive. I've sold pieces of Della Robia for $40,000 plus. Isn't that amazing? And that's not the wow. best of it. The best wow. pieces would bring 50 plus right now. Really? Wow. Wow. Your own personal taste, do you, ha- do you collect or did you collect a certain aspect of art pottery? Uh, I could never afford to collect it primarily because I collect it primarily because I started an auction business uh-huh. and didn't make any money out of it for 18 years. You're the sec- second auctioneer that said that yeah. in about three weeks to me. But uh, yeah. also, there are problems with my collecting it. I can afford some pieces now, some things. Number one, so I'm going to compete with my clients. There's a conflict of yeah. interest. Number yeah. two, what I, wants a, yeah. what, what I want is a lot of money. I yeah. collect George Orr. That's expensive. I mean, the great pieces of George Orr are six figures. Wow. I've got two cats. Uh-huh. You know, and I don't have a house big enough to put a sh- dedicated showcase in. Because yep. once you start collecting, you're a caretaker. You have a responsibility. That's right. It's almost a burden. 
Right. My responsibility is taking care of the pieces, getting them in here, cleaning them up, mm-hmm. protecting them, finding them good homes, selling them accurately based on condition and provenance. So we care, we're caretakers in that regard, but by and large, we, and we also scratch that itch. We don't have to live with it. Every four months, a new grouping of things comes through here. It's like the grandbaby coming in. I like the <laughs> grandbaby. That's right. We're, we're going to hand it back. Yeah. And we, um, we have the Forbes collection of arts and crafts coming in here for October. Wow. We're already working on the October sale, and this one hasn't Great. happened yet. Wow. Uh, as far as art pottery is concerned, uh, by and large, it is more affordable than it was in 2005. In some cases, very much so. Very few things have are selling for at or more than they were bringing at the height of the market. Mm-hmm. That said, uh, if you if you are interested, if you apply yourself, you will gain a great deal of information at a very low cost mm-hmm. to decide what it is that you like, if anything. Yeah. Between what's available online, mm-hmm. re- Googling things, watching auctions, watching auctions live. And when I mean gathering information, I don't just mean when was Groovy made and where, but what's it selling for mm-hmm. and how has it been selling Groovy is by and large one of a kind because they're hand-thrown pieces, but they repeated ideas. So what's that eight-and-a-half-inch five-sided vase with the leaves and the buds and the green glaze selling for? You can track that piece for a decade. Mm-hmm. You can see variations of that piece for a decade and what they, the, the sweep of what they've brought and what they continue to bring. You can really train yourself if you're so inclined. And that's mm-hmm. a blessing that... When a new book came out, it was met with great enthusiasm in the 70s because yeah. that meant there were three books now instead of two. <laughs> now you've got 50 and yeah. articles. And then online, like you said, there's so much information. Crazy. It's not all great information, but there is and a museum lot of- collections? There were museum collections in the, in the mm-hmm. 70s. I yeah. mean, now you can go to the L.A. County and you, can, you go to the Boston Museum of Art and... and uh, the Metropolitan, what am I thinking? The Metropolitan Museum of Art took in the Ellison Collection over 300 of the best pieces you'll ever see. And they're on display in the American Wing. They're sensational. Wow. You could spend, you can walk through that collection and see more high-end art pottery in an hour than you would have seen in 10 years. Yeah. Back in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Yeah. So, opportunity. Yeah. Well, this has all been really great information, and I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Uh, thanks for asking. You're welcome anytime. Yes. Every four months is another collection to talk about. All right. <laughs> okay. So this is Martin Willis with David Rago, and we're signing off. I hope you enjoyed today's show with David Rago. Just a couple of announcements. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash auction underscore podcast. You can like us on Facebook. That icon is right on our website, which is antiqueauctionforum.com. You can leave a comment on this podcast, or you can contact me at info at antiqueauctionforum.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back real soon.